War is nothing but a continuation of politics with the admixture of other means. From Karl von Clausewitz. Another quote. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un just stated that the nuclear button is on his desk at all times. Will someone from his depleted and food-starved regime please inform him that I too have a nuclear button, but it is much bigger and more powerful one than his, and my button works? Donald J. Trump via Twitter on the 3rd of January 2018. Welcome back to Politips, the podcast that asks political questions. My name is Ed Castell and I am once more joined by Johnny Langton. Hello. Well, Johnny, did you enjoy those quotes? What do you think this week's topic is on? I did enjoy the quotes. I imagine it's on the ability of the UK government um, slash, well, the ability of the branches of government in the US, Parliament and Prime Minister in the UK to actually declare war absolutely the ultimate power that our political leaders have our executives have is to deploy military force um, and what we had there i mean a famous quote from Clausewitz um, from the 19th century you know a noted theorist on war studies um, and, and normally it's that that was his actual words but normally it is phrased as a war is a continuation of politics by other means essentially it is a tool used by politicians um once normal politics has has reached its conclusion and you'd go into war my second quote was of course from trump um and this context was this that he was bragging to to um kim jong-un of north korea over the size of his nuclear arsenal and it was a bizarre political diplomatic game he was playing with the north korean leader that then paved the ways for having this unprecedented summit where Trump actually met Kim Jong-un in, in a famous summit. But that is perhaps a topic for another day. What I was more focused on is his bragging over his nuclear arsenal and what powers do presidents like Trump actually have at their disposal? Go on, men. I'm the president of the United States and I want to declare war on Canada because they keep encroaching into Montana and North Dakota. Is it as simple as that? Am I able to mobilise my military? Do I have that power? I mean, a great question, Johnny. And yes, technically, as commander-in-chief, so the president is commander-in-chief of the armed forces, and therefore, as the as a singular executive in the United States, it means all executive power rests in the office of the president. So sure, the president could order the United States military uh, to intervene in Canada. The question is, though, are there any limits on that? And what role does Congress, representing the people of America and the states of America, what role would Congress play in limiting that power? And then conversely, in our UK system, what is it as well? How much power do UK prime minister have militarily? Are they able to send troops abroad without authorization from parliament? And that's what we're going to explore this week. Now, you said in that scenario, mobilize the troops against Canada, yeah. um, which would be obviously surprising because would, yeah. both the United States and Canada are part of a military alliance called NATO, the North yeah. Atlantic Treaty Organization. But when we say mobilize power, how much power are we actually talking about? Well, they're pretty strong, aren't they, Johnny? The Americans. Yeah. Yeah, not bad. Not bad. But they would have to mobilise their troops. They would also have to raise money for the campaign too, which I assume is where 
the mission would run into problems. Yeah, well, certainly if it was going to be over the long term. It's worth maybe quickly comparing the US and the UK since these are the two systems that we're talking about. So the United States has a population of over 339 million, uh, the United Kingdom over 68 million. But if we look at the, we said roughly five times the size of the population in the United States compares to the United Kingdom, but it's actually much more than five times the military power. Mm-hmm. So the UK spends um, over $62 billion a year in its armed forces. So I'm giving it in dollars to compare it to the United States. Um, in the United States, it's over $831 billion that goes into paying for their military. We have over 184,000 military personnel. So not, that's not the size of the army. That's all the people in uniform, including Air Force, Navy. In the United States, it's over a million to 1,328,000. So a huge disparity in forces. And then you could go on and on. Um, the UK has 664 aircraft, the US over 13,000, UK 120 fighter jets, the US over 1,800. Um, and then in terms of really impressive things like aircraft carriers, well, the UK did build two aircraft carriers, which is a huge bit of the UK's expenditure in recent years. So it's got two very impressive impressive looking aircraft carriers but the US of course have 11 okay so they can mobilize force um, around the world in quite an impressive way and so in recent times there has been a bit of a debate is the United Kingdom still a tier one military power and what we mean by that is the ability to deploy troops or military power anywhere in the world and also carry things like nuclear weapons. And that was my quote from Trump earlier. He was bragging specifically about the size of um, the United States' nuclear arsenal. And it's worth mentioning that both the United States and the United Kingdom are um, nuclear powers. So the United States has a range of uh, nuclear weapons that it can deploy through submarines, through air, from ground. The UK, we have um, a system called Trident, which is a continuous at sea deterrent. So we have like four submarines that essentially rotate. So anywhere in the world, there'll be a submarine with nuclear weapons. There's actually been a 2021, 2021 integrated review in the UK where our stockpile was limited at 225 warheads. That's actually going to go up to 260. So we are having a, potentially a small increase in our armed forces. But you get the idea. Both powers can deploy nuclear weapons if they wanted to. The UK has is one of the few countries in NATO that does spend over 2% of its GDP on the armed forces. But the issue is, because the technology and the cost of um, hardware, like warships and things, keeps increasing and increasing in terms of our procurement, our actual number of personnel keep dwindling, which is why we get lost. You'll see a lot of commentary and and fears from ex-generals and things thinking, oh, do we even have an army? How how many people could we actually deploy in a war? And recently there was a US general who, off the record, um, raised concerns saying that maybe the UK is barely a tier two military power. Mm. So I suppose the point I'm making is when Trump was bragging about his nuclear arsenal, well, the Americans, when it comes to military coercive power, do have a lot to brag about still. So they're still the world's number one military power. The United Kingdom does have some very capable forces that they will tend to deploy in a supporting role with other allies, notably America. So looking at the Constitution, which is a nice codified constitution in the United States, we can um, see in black and white what are the powers, what do the articles in the Constitution say about the powers, foreign policy powers for the President and for Congress? In Article 1 of the Constitution, 
where the powers of Congress are laid out, it says that only Congress can declare war. So if you have a formal declaration of war where legally say, right, we are now at a state of war in the country, um, Congress does that. Um, under Article 2, where the powers of presence are laid out, it is clear that the president is commander-in-chief. So he can deploy and give orders to, to the military and essentially wage the war. Um, and you, you will see you know, the military personnel outside the White House, when they salute, they are saluting the president. And since Ronald Reagan, you'll see a president will salute the Marine Corps on his way to the presidential helicopter called Marine One. So you have that sort of nice little symbolic bit. So under the terms of the Constitution, it seemed that they had in mind checks and balances where the president would deploy troops, be in charge of them, but only Congress would have the ability to declare war, therefore being a check. So they, they had in mind that you couldn't have, you know, an imperial type president where power went to their head, waging war on everyone without that check from Congress. The reality, though, is a bit more complicated because I'm sure you know, Johnny, when the last time was that the United States actually declared war on somebody. Well, most people think it was Japan for Pearl Harbor and Germany, which the declaration came a few days later, and then, of course, Italy on the same day. In fact, it was June 42. Can you guess which countries they were that, that um, the USA declared war on? Um, I don't know for sure, Johnny, but I'm assuming these are still countries that were part, I mean, it's to do with World War II, so we're in 1942, World War, the World War is being waged. Are these going to be allies of Germany or Japan? Allies of Germany, Bulgaria, Hungary and Romania. So Congress had the ability to declare war, but I think the point that we would both agree with is if it hasn't happened since 1942, America have certainly been at war many times since 1942, that suggests the power is redundant. There's barely been a year where the United States hasn't deployed their military in some capacity since World War II. And certainly we've had things that we'd recognize as wars. We talk about the Vietnam War or the Iraq War, for example. Does that mean, though, that Congress has no role in checking the presidential power? The reality of this is a bit more complex. So in 1973, America had been waging the Vietnam War for a number of years, and part of that was based on powers given by Congress to the president. So they passed something called the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution that enabled the presidency to essentially wage war and offer military support to South Vietnam. By 1973, public opinion in America changed and was pretty against further involvement in Vietnam um, and also over things like the imperial presidency of Nixon, kind of opinion was swinging away from, you know, over mighty presidential power in war. So they passed something called the War Powers Act of 1973. And this states that the president needs to ask Congress in advance for military action. So it requires the president to notify Congress within 48 hours of committing armed forces to military action and forbids armed forces from remaining for more than 60 days with a further 30-day withdrawal period without congressional authorization for the use of military force or a declaration of war. So it doesn't have to be a declaration of war, but they can give this thing called um, the Authorization of Military Use, AUMF. This was passed by two-thirds um, uh, within the House and Senate, and it overrid a veto of Richard Nixon, who tried to veto that. So in some ways, I think what's clear, you know, is it's a congressional 
law that's been passed. Um, it does mean, and as we'll come on to, many of the presidential actions have been more like emergency powers used. So, for example, missile strikes, special forces. If you think about it, all of those could be used quite quickly. Um, and as long as Congress are notified 48 hours later and they're not used for a prolonged period, it would still allow the president to use emergency military powers to strike people abroad. So that is one um, caveat, or, or sorry, one way the president can get around it. Equally, under the terms of that act, the presidents always thought this was a bit unconstitutional. Now, it's not been tested by the Supreme Court, who've, who've made a ruling on it, but there are presidents who've essentially tried to get around provisions of that act. So it's not as set in stone as maybe you would at first think. Um, so in Libya in 2011, under the Obama presidency, um, Obama authorised military intervention in, North, in that North African country for longer than that 60-day um, period without explicit authorization from Congress. However, Congress did then put a further law. So in 2001, following the events of September the 11th, where terrorists flew planes into the Twin Towers, you know, with the worst um, terrorist attack on, on in uh, US history, um, Congress passed the authorization for use of military force, authorizing all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September the 11th, 2001, which basically provided a blank check to wage war against any terrorist groups um, and individual terrorists rather than just states. And that has been used many times since then by the Bush and Obama presidencies um, and by the Trump presidency as well to, to launch, for example, drone attacks um, to kill terrorists. So, and they will do that under the provisions of this act. Okay. So, the president, since that passing of that law, have actually used military powers a number of times. So we had Bush, he invaded Af Afghanistan in 2001. Well, I say invaded. Military force was used in Afghanistan in 2001 and Iraq in 2003 in that so-called war on terror, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, Johnny. A favourite topic of mine. I mean, one that we, I'm sure, can both just about remember, right? I mean, um, unlike uh, maybe some of our younger listeners, um, I remember it was a bit of a or seminal... Or co-hosts. <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Where is James today, anyway? Um, yeah, we, we, we can remember like a, a very seminal moment. And then since then, I've always talked about Libya in 2011, but also Syria in 2015, that there were missile strikes. And most famously, the chief architect of the, those 9-11 um, terrorist attacks, Osama bin Laden, was killed through special forces use that was authorized by Obama in 2011. And if you remember that footage, it's quite an amazing thing. It was like it, you could see footage of the Situation Room in the White House where you'd see Obama and other key members like Hillary Clinton, who was Secretary of State, watching live feeds of special forces swoop in and um, take him out. And Donald Trump took out al-Baghdadi and Biden took out Aymar al-Zawahiri. Both of them very prominent um, leaders of terrorist groups. And you could argue that have an impact today in the, when we're recording this in February 2024. If we look at the attacks on Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and in particular also Qasem Soleimani in 2020, he was actually the leader of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. Mm. So he was a top official in the Iranian state 
that he was, uh, and he was killed on his way to Baghdad airport by a drone strike under the Trump presidency. And now this one, this is very, first of all, controversial at the time because he was a senior Iranian, um, because he was a senior member of the Iranian government, but also has big consequences still today because Iran is one of the big regional players in the Middle East that is essentially aligned against the United States. So does that mean there's there's no oversight from Congress then? Because it sounds as though the president has unlimited powers. If they can go and murder, if they can go and assassinate um, terrorist leaders or even hugely influential and powerful figures from within sovereign states, then it sounds like their power is untethered. It can sound like that. And that has been criticism. And in fact, if we look at this attack on uh, General Soleimani um, from Iran, that happened on the 3rd of January 2020 when the United States carried out that um, attack. On the 8th of January, there were then senior White House officials like the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, the Defense Secretary Mark Esper, and the CIA Director Gina Haspel, um, who then briefed important members within Congress. Okay, so there's a briefing given to Congress. And actually, there was some real criticism So uh, from actually the Republican side, to so the same side as the Trump presidency. So Republican Senator Rand Paul said he was concerned that there was no specific information given to us of a specific attack. Meanwhile, Mike Lee described it as the worst briefing I've seen, at least on military issue, in my nine years, and criticised officials for warning members against debating any legislative limits on Trump's war powers. So they are essentially, and there was an argument that they were going to side with the Democrats in passing a resolution under the 1973 War Powers Act, um, instructing Trump to remove all US forces from hostility with Iran. Now, it's two interesting things here. First of all, there was criticism from within Congress, and there was this element that Congress would provide oversight and would have, you know, would hold committee hearings where they would question key members of the executive on that decision and then criticise it. There was also the threat that maybe they could use a resolution, the War Powers Act, to order the president to remove troops. Essentially, that. So there is that precedent of Congress trying to authorise and place limits on that power. However, the fact is that didn't happen. There was no resolution passed. And therefore, this is more criticism from Congress about something that they have no real power to limit. So it seems when it comes, I would argue, to the use of deadly force on drone attacks, special forces, there are very, very few limits, actually, that Congress currently places on a president. So if I plan some drone attacks in Ottawa as part of my um, military action against Canada, then there's not much in my way in terms of preventing me from doing it. Unless, of course, that military power, that act outraged Congress so much, including your own party, in which case you'd have that two-thirds majority to be able to do some to pass some laws against that and maybe limit you. But no, there'd be nothing stopping you authorizing the strikes in the first place. Wow. Because you could do that under those powers. Which is a you know a sobering thought. And we can also see this power being used very recently. So we're recording this in February 2024. Well, very in January of, of this year, two militaries, um, which are the United States and the United Kingdom, um, did launch some attacks on Houthis in Yemen. So on the 
Jan the 11th of January, the first strike was given. And so I don't know how much you've been following this, Johnny, but it's to do with a civil war in Yemen and attacks on the in the Red Sea shipping. So yeah, it doesn't sound like there's much constraint there at all. Is this something, is, is the recent military action in Yemen a good example of that? Absolutely. It's yet another example of executive power being yielded by this time the Biden presidency to launch strikes. So situation in Yemen is that there's been a civil war and there's a group who control part of Yemen called the Houthis, who are an important regional power aligned against the United States. And since the outbreak of hostilities in Gaza between um, Hamas and, and the Israelis, the Houthis have essentially declared war on Israel on the side of Hamas, and but they but because they're quite far away, so you know, over by the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden, what they are doing instead is launching attacks on shipping. It's a very very important shipping strait. I think something like twenty percent of shipping to do with oil passes through that strait up the Red Sea towards the Suez Canal, and they've been launching attacks on shipping, claiming that there's a link with that shipping to Israel, although many of the ships who have been attacked don't really have any tangible links to Israel. The United States tried to give several warnings over this in the Allies, and then it's resulted in strikes being launched on the 11th of January. So a series of um, Houthi military targets um, were launched via, uh, and the UK took part also. They um, sent some fighter jets over from their um, base in Cyprus, uh, but the Americans used a range of assets, including missiles and drones, to take out um, some of these. So this is a good example of military action being deployed without any authorization from Congress. So there is a part of Article 1 of the Constitution that refers to a congressional power of raising and supporting armies. Is this the most crucial power that Congress retains? I would absolutely argue so, Johnny. So if you think about it, the United States spends a huge amount of its military and has a huge range of assets that can be deployed. And the president can deploy these in, in an emergency to, to great effect. However, if you're going to get into an actual war or a sustained military deployment, you, of course, need money. You need funding. You need the logistics to be able to do that. And it's not as simple to say that all wars that the United States gets involved in involves itself directly deploying military power. So two of its allies where it is not currently actively fighting in but nevertheless gives a range of military support are Israel but also Ukraine, which um, sustains an evasion under President Putin of Russia. Now here there is $110 billion of military aid for both Ukraine and Israel that are being held up by Congress because there's not an agreement from Congress to pass that budget because it needs an agreement between the Democrats and the Republicans which they are not willing to give at the moment. So until Congress agrees that funding, that essentially puts a stop to Biden's strategy of giving further military support to the Ukrainians in terms of funding, in terms of the armaments necessary, so funding all, all, all the armaments. So that is the power of the purse in action. And the power of the purse is that Congress controls spending. And Congress can decide if they're going to raise the debt ceiling, which means that the United States could borrow more to fund this kind of thing. And that's happened in the past. So um, under the Vietnam War, Congress started starving 
the uh, war of funding in terms of the military and support that became to South Vietnam. Vietnamization, Richard Do it, Nixon. Absolutely, d- doing that program. Um, and more recently, for example, in January 2014, uh, under the Obama presidency, Congress reduced the aid given to Afghanistan, which was a key plank of US support there. And Obama, the presidency, had to try and scramble around, see if there's other funds and pots it could raid to try and give them support. But ultimately, that was a process of gradual withdrawal of US support for um, uh, their involvement in Afghanistan that culminated in Biden withdrawing altogether in uh, 2020, resulting in the Taliban resuming their hold of power. How common are standoffs between Congress and the president over funding? These are, this is a recurring theme that comes up again and again because Cong- essentially you need to get support often on a bipartisan basis. So both the Republicans and Democrats need to agree a budget um, and the debt ceiling being raised. And increasingly, this happens through a process of, call, uh, of passing a continuing resolution where temporary funding for a few months is given so you can raise the debt ceiling temporarily. But like meaningful budgets are becoming ever harder to pass. Um, and that has resulted in government shutdowns under the Obama presidency and the Trump presidency. There have been periods where elements of the federal government have to shut down because they don't have enough money anymore. And that has a knock-on impact on the spending on, on the military. So I would say if you're going to go to war as a president, so in your hypothetical scenario where the Biden presidency announced attacks on Canada, if that led to a sustained war and a sustained campaign, what Congress could do is starve them of funding. I suppose so politically speaking as well, p- politics has obviously become even more tribal even more divisive in America, but the Republican Party are far less inclined to involve themselves in foreign wars than they were under the Bush administration. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And I suppose politically speaking, um, there's been, the Republican Party have been far less inclined since the Bush administration to entangle themselves in, in foreign wars, which makes it difficult for Democratic presidents to move on foreign action. Let's move on to the UK. What powers are held by parliaments over foreign policy compared to Congress? As ever with the United Kingdom, we have an uncodified constitution and a lot of conventions, meaning unwritten rules around this. So just like how when the president bores Marine One, he'll have like Marine guards that will salute him because he is commander-in-chief of the armed forces. In the UK system, it's our head of state. So it's good King Charles, who is head of the armed forces. They don't salute Rishi Sunak? No, well, sometimes, I believe, actually, as a minister of the crown, you get some sort of respect from them. But no, not as head of the armed forces. It's a shame. Instead, all of that pomp and ceremony, which the British are very, very good at, um, goes towards our sovereign and head of state. Instead, however, the prerogative powers... So the royal powers of sovereign through a convention, unwritten rule, are exercised by the prime minister and the minister of defence and and other key members of the cabinet. So that ability to order troops into battle is a prerogative power yielded by the prime minister. However, to add a complication though, the prime minister is the leader of the largest party in parliament and we have a system of parliamentary government therefore parliament will scrutinize the 
decisions of the government and hold them to account. So we have a bit of a complicated situation. So in theory, the Prime Minister orders the troops into battle, can declare war, do the treaties. However, in practice, increasingly over a number of years, there has been an emerging convention, so an unwritten rule, where Parliament would be asked first for some sort of authorization or green light. Most famously, the intervention in 2003 in Iraq. So if we look there, there was a parliamentary debate that was held in a series of two votes on the 18th of March 2003 to allow Tony Blair's government to authorise troops into battle in Iraq. Um, so that was passed by 412 to 149 votes um, on the at 10 o'clock on the 18th of March. Then the following day, the military operation began. Why do you think Blair decided to call for the vote? Because he didn't, it wasn't a requirement, he didn't need to do it. Was this a political move? This was gained, This was a controversial intervention where there's a lot of debate in the public. And I think politically, he had no real choice but to seek that authorization and consent because then he could show that he'd united Parliament behind him and the country in issuing this authorization. So if you remember, this was following the 9th, September the 11th terrorist attacks. There'd already been involvement in Afghanistan and there was pressure from the Bush administration in America uh, to intervene in Iraq because there were fears that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, that he was hiding from weapons inspectors, um, and therefore there was going to be a military intervention to find those weapons, uh, remove Saddam Hussein from power. So there's a whole series of debates and intervention in the UN, but it culminated in this decision and this vote. Now then, this is where it gets interesting, because that then set a bit of a precedent for asking Parliament first. And the most famous example of a prime minister not being able to use military force happened in 2013. On the, on the 29th of August 2013, under David Cameron, he actually lost a vote by 272 votes, 285, against military intervention in Syria. I remember this from the Cameron Years documentary series on the BBC. So he's there's a clip where David Cameron's in Cornwall playing with his kids and he sees footage of the chemical attacks in, in Syria and, according to the interview, it then becomes a moral decision of David Cameron. But I think, and you will correct me if I'm wrong, the reason why he called for a vote, even though he, he was, he was um, not convinced the vote would go through, he felt obliged to do it is because two years earlier he called one on Libya. And he won that one convincingly, what, 557 to 13 voted yay, voted with the government. So therefore, that precedent was well in place. So he didn't have a choice but to call another one for Syria. Am I right? Absolutely. I think this, this is a political pressure to, to do that. Um, and part of David Cameron saying he was listening to Parliament and, and would... You know, I need to pledge to use Parliament in this kind of way to essentially have let Parliament have its say before troops are deployed abroad. Uh, and this all springs from something called the 
Arab Spring in 2011, where across much of the Middle East and North Africa, there were a series of protest movements against some of the authoritarian regimes. And that, so that happened in 2011 in Libya against the authoritarian regime of Gaddafi, which eventually the UK, France and America intervened in. And that was that vote. But also from 2011, there was a civil war in Syria that developed against President Bashar al-Assad. Now, the problem started because in August 2012, Obama was asked what so Obama the president in America was asked what could lead him to use military force in Syria and what he said was this we have been very clear to the Assad regime that a red line for us is we start seeing a whole bunch of chemical weapons moving around or being utilized that would change my my calculus so therefore he was implying if chemical weapons are used then he would intervene militarily. Now, clear evidence of chemical weapons being used by President Assad then did emerge. You might remember some of the footage, you know, whole families, people sort of frothing at the mouth, writhing around. And so there was this huge moral imperative to do, to be seen to do something. Okay, they weren't going to invade Syria, but to, to show um, Assad that those red lines meant something. And so there were strikes were debated. Um, essentially, an arrangement was being drawn up that um, Cameron, David Cameron, would support America in those strikes. And they would, but first, he would have that debate in Parliament. In the actual event, dozens of Tory MPs rebelled against this from David Cameron's own side, mainly over concerns over what had happened in Iraq and military intervention be seen to not be to, to not go according to plan. And there were fears of what it would do to Syria and how it might escalate it. Equally, Cameron misread Ed Miliband's, the leader of the, of the Labour Party's support. He thought he had. Labour support for it. And in the end, Ed Miliband passed a, an amendment, a motion saying essentially they had reservations. So he lost that vote. The day, uh, and David Cameron immediately said, fine, I've had that, you know, Parliament has had its say, I am going to respect that decision. So no military intervention happened. And amazingly, that also made Obama have second thoughts, which is, I think, one of the very, very few circumstances you're going to see in recent times where American foreign policy actually taking its cue from what the parliament in Britain said. I, don't, I can't think of any other occasion. Definitely not. Not, well, at least for 250 years anyway, potentially. Maybe not even then. No. Normally, Britain very much plays a supporting role in America. Didn't this also damage the US's relationship with Russia on a side note? Arguably, some people would say this created a bit of a power vacuum in the Middle East because America was seen not to, essentially the red lines that American presence might set weren't actually respected in the event. And therefore, it led an opportunity for the Russians to become involved in the civil war in Syria and offer a lot of support to the Assad regime, which which then happened. And equally, when we've now got the um, Biden presidency launching strikes against the Houthis, that is partially, I think, an attempt to reassert American power in that region and say, no, they do have red lines that won't be crossed. Now then, we might think in Britain, okay, so it's, very, it's clear now we've got a convention that if military force is going to be used, Parliament has its say first. The problem with that, though, is that because it's uncodified and unwritten, it still holds that actually, when it comes to it, the prerogative power can be used to use force. So in 2018, there were actually military strikes in Syria against this time Islamic State um, and some of the civil war that happened there within that ongoing civil war. And that happened when parliament was in recess, so it wasn't sitting. And so there was no parliamentary authorization. 
and most recently in those strikes against the Houthis, which, as we mentioned, the UK took part in, Parliament again was not consulted until after the event. Those strikes first happened on the 11th of January, which is a Thursday evening. On Friday, Parliament was in recess. It wasn't sitting on that Friday, which sometimes happens on Fridays throughout the year. Uh, so it wasn't sitting until Monday. On that Monday, then there was a bit of scrutiny in that there was a statement to the House by the Prime Minister and questions could be asked. But essentially, the strikes had already happened. Parliament was not granting authorization. Um, and the second time it happened, again, what the the, the Ministry of Defence issued a statement. So it said, on the 22nd of January, the UK conducted further strikes against Houthi targets Four Royal Aircraft Force Typhoons, FGR-4s, supported by a pair of Voyager tankers, joined US forces in a deliberate strike against Houthi sites in Yemen. In other words, this is a decision that has been made by the Prime Minister using the prerogative, the Ministry of Defence issues a statement. Parliament will very much have its say, um, after, but they will be after the actual event. So overall, does the Prime Minister or the President have more, I wouldn't say more power, more relative power on military action? I would argue probably that overall the President has more power because although the royal prerogative does in theory place less, fewer limits on a prime minister to use that force. In practice, the fact that they sit in parliament means that parliament, whenever they're next sitting, will always have the question, the ability to question, to debate and, and pass resolutions. And a prime minister always has to be aware of what politically they can get away with within parliament in a way that a president doesn't really have to do over Congress, unless it's going to be a prolonged conflict where they need funding. Mm. But a number of laws have been passed by Congress that essentially enables the president the ability to use their force. And also, although I know you said the word relative, because the US military is by several magnitude just so much more powerful, it gives a president so many more options on the table in terms of deploying military force. Whereas in reality, in Britain, military force will usually be in a supporting capacity with allies, such normally the Americans. In other words, it would be like an international coalition, as it were, again, in a particular instant, whereas an American president has that power in the ability to intervene almost anywhere in the world, and they have that option on the table. So to summarise, both systems have the ability to use coercive power. Both systems will have intervention, oversight and scrutiny by the legislators, Congress or Parliament but still a terrifying amount of power is left in the hands of our executives. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. And we'll see you next time.